Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Table. I'm your host, Gabrielle Dresner. With me again today is my co-host, Hussein Hydri. Good to see you, Gabby. Good to see you, too. We've got a really special episode today. We've got two guests from um, Michigan who have worked on Juvenile Life Without Parole and Juvenile Life Without Parole Policy. So you'll get to hear some unique voices. A quick recap of what we covered in the last episode. We talked about juvenile life without parole, which is a sentence in which a youth gets sent to prison without any opportunity for release. And we talked about the six major Supreme Court cases that uh, the decisions dictated the use of juvenile life without parole. And that was Roper versus Simmons, which eliminated the death penalty for youth. Graham versus Florida, which banned life without parole for non-homicide offenses, Miller versus Alabama, and Jackson versus Hobbs, which banned mandatory life without parole for youth convicted of homicide, Montgomery versus Louisiana, which stated that the Miller decision applies retroactively, and Jones versus Mississippi, which stated that a sentencing authority does not need to find a youth permanently incorrigible to be sentenced to life without parole. For context, the United States is the only country in the entire world that allows youth to be sentenced to life without parole. And according to the UN Convention on uh, the Rights of the Child, uh, sentencing a child to die in prison is against international law. So the United States is a significant outlier with about 2,500 kids sentenced to juvenile life without parole in the United States. So while that's the case, a lot has changed uh, over time. 32 states in the District of Columbia have changed their laws regarding juvenile life without parole. Uh, 25 states and uh, DC have actually banned its use entirely uh, and the other seven have limited its application. So we talked a bit last episode about the circumstances of the lives of those kids in each of the cases we talked about. But on a more broad scale, I wanna talk about the kids who get sentenced to life without parole, what their demographics look like. So in 2012, the Sentencing Project released findings from a survey of people sentenced to life in prison as juveniles and found that the defendants in the cases we discussed last episode are not unusual. So of those who were sentenced to life without parole um, as youth, 79% witnessed violence in their homes on a regular basis, 32% grew up in public housing, fewer than half of those, those youth were attending school at the time of their offense. 47% of the kids were physically abused. 80% of girls sentenced to life without parole reported histories of physical abuse. And 77% of those girls reported histories of sexual abuse. And also a note here, um, we know that the justice system has a disproportionate impact on people of color and juvenile life without parole is not exempt from that. 62% of juvenile life without parole sentences were to kids that were black. Yeah, and just some more some more information. Since the Miller decision and the Montgomery decision, um, about 25% of juvenile lifers were released. 49% redu- uh, received reduced sentences. About 23% have not yet been resentenced, uh, and 3% were resentenced to juvenile life without parole. And of the states that actually still allow juvenile life without parole, only four states account for about 80% of those sentences. And those states include Michigan, Pennsylvania, Louisiana, and Florida. And considering that Michigan is one of those four states, the work that we're doing here is very, very critical. All right, so now we're gonna hear from Dan Karabkin from the 
American Civil Liberties Union of Michigan, and he's going to walk us through a case that happened in Michigan that challenged juvenile life without parole and sort of the specifics of that. Dan, do you want to go ahead and just give us an introduction of who you are and the work that you do? Sure. Um, my name is Dan Karopkin. I'm the legal director at the American Civil Liberties Union of Michigan. And the ACLU is uh, one of the uh, largest and oldest organizations in the country that's dedicated to protecting the constitutional rights of everyone. Thanks for that summary on the ACLU and, and your, your work there. So one of the things that we were hoping to talk about today is the case of Hill versus Snyder, which was a case that the American Civil Liberties Union and the ACLU of Michigan filed in 2012 on behalf of nine Michigan citizens who were sentenced to juvenile life without parole. Are you able to give us sort of an overview of that case and how the case went down in Michigan? Sure. So um, Hill versus Snyder was the first federal lawsuit filed in the country challenging the unconstitutionality of locking children up in prison uh, for the rest of their lives and never giving them a second chance. And that case took many twists and turns over the years. It lasted for 10 years, but I can tell you, I can summarize it this way. When we started the case, all of our clients were in prison for offenses that had been committed when they were children. And they had been told time and time again, they had no hope of ever going home, that they were gonna die in prison. And now most of our clients are either out, they're back with their families, they've got jobs, they're continuing on with their lives, or uh, they've been given an opportunity to demonstrate that they shouldn't be in prison for the rest of their lives. And so they have hope, uh, real hope, realistic hope that they will get to go home someday. That's so great to hear. So at MCYJ, we really firmly believe that kids who get in trouble are still kids and that they deserve second chances and they should be treated as kids. So it's great to hear that your clients were able to have that opportunity to show that, you know, they're not the same kid they were when they made a horrible mistake. So you said this was the first federal case challenging juvenile life without parole. We had talked in our previous episode about a series of Supreme Court cases, starting with Roper versus Simmons and sort of working our way through the different decisions that challenged um, the death penalty and life without parole for homicide offenses and non-homicide offenses. Could you talk a bit about the difference between the Hill versus Snyder case being the first federal case and how that's different from those other cases? Sure. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you refer to a series of Supreme Court cases going back um, a a couple of decades. And, and, uh, you know, basically that those cases arose from a growing body of scientific research that demonstrated uh, objectively through peer reviewed studies that children who get involved in criminal uh, behavior are scientifically and objectively less culpable um, than adults. And because of that, the U.S. Supreme Court 
started making a number of rulings requiring states to treat children differently from adults in the criminal legal system as part of the Eighth Amendment's requirement in our constitutional system uh, that cruel and unusual punishment is prohibited. Um, And so that started with the death penalty. First, the Supreme Court ruled that children under the age of 16 could not be executed. Then they ruled that no child under the age of 18 could be executed. And then they ruled in Graham versus Florida that for non-homicide offenses, children could not be punished with life in prison without the possibility of parole. And after Graham was decided was when we filed our lawsuit. And our lawsuit was filed in federal court on behalf of uh, all juveniles serving life without parole in Michigan. So it wasn't an individual case uh, where someone had been convicted and sentenced and gone up through the state court system and eventually got to the US Supreme Court. We affirmatively went into federal court and said, now that we have Graham versus Florida on the books, we wanna take that just one step further and get a federal court ruling that it's cruel and unusual punishment, not only to sentence someone to life without parole for a non-homicide crime, but to sentence someone to life without parole for any crime if that crime was committed when they were a child. And we did that for a number of reasons, but probably the most compelling of which was that Michigan at this point in time was um, an outlier state and not an outlier state, unfortunately, in a good way, but an outlier state uh, in a really bad way. We had the second highest number of people serving life without the possibility of parole for offenses committed as children in the entire country. Over 360 youth had been sentenced to life without parole. Um, And so what we wanted to do was bring this case into federal court on behalf of everyone Uh, and show the judge the big picture. Don't focus on every single individual case, but give, look at the big picture. And if the big picture says, you know, painting all youth with a broad brush like this and sentencing them all to life without the possibility of parole, without any individualized notion of what their situation was in life, that's overbroad, that's unconstitutional and uh, we should be giving everyone a second chance. And so that's what, that was our strategy. That was why we went into federal court with this impact lawsuit. Um, and it's ultimately, I think, what uh, helped us make the most headway uh, over the 10 years that we were litigating the case. Thanks so much for making that clarification. So you said that the case took about 10 years. So that means it's just been decided, correct? Well, actually, the case was filed in November of 2010. Um, I think I heard you mention 2012, but it was actually 2010. Um, And um, and, and the reason I kind of have that in my head is is because the case didn't take about 10 years. It actually took exactly 10 years. We settled the case and had it had the final ruling in the case 10 years to the day after when we had filed it. Um, And so there's a little bit of poetic justice in that. Ultimately, yes, it it took a decade um, to make the progress that we we eventually made. 
And, and I'll say that, you know, we did a lot with this case. There's work yet to come and there's work yet to do. Um, uh, unfortunately, there are still quite a number of injustices when it comes to youth in our criminal legal system. So um, I think our case made a huge uh, impact and, and we made a lot of headway, but um, uh, we're not done yet. That kind of leads me to my next question. What does the decision in Hill mean for those who are serving juvenile life without parole sentences in Michigan? Mm-hmm. Um, so so uh, there are a number of outcomes from, from Hill, um, all, all of which impact uh, youth serving uh, the sentence in different ways. One of them was, was that in the middle of the case, when the U.S. Supreme Court came out with its Miller versus Alabama decision, um, we were able to get a ruling from the judge a declaratory ruling that Michigan's system of punishing children with life without parole was unconstitutional and had to be reformed and fixed. At that point, our legislature went back and they said, okay, everyone serving this sentence um, will be resentenced to one of two possibilities. Either uh, they will be resentenced to life without parole after a judge considers all of the circumstances of their case, including their their background and the the facts involving the case, as well as their potential for rehabilitation. Or uh, they would be sentenced to what's called a term of years sentence, which just means a sentence less than life, where after a certain number of years in prison, you're eligible for parole. And so the parole board considers you as an individual and decides whether or not you can be paroled. Um, And then ultimately, even if you don't get paroled, there would be a maximum number of years uh, that you could serve, at which point if you've served the maximum, uh, you have to be released. Um, And so that was a huge game changer because most people who were being resentenced did not get life without parole. Again, most of them got the term of years sentence. Absolutely. And Dan, I just had a quick question about uh, the actual settlement. You know, thinking about these cases, I think sometimes it's uh, easy to get lost in, you know, the sentencing and the crime that the kid committed and all that, but it's a part of a whole formula, right? The kid becomes involved in the justice system uh, and the judge finally issues a sentence, but there's another uh, piece of this puzzle, which is the prosecutor. Uh, And, you know, I just want you to comment on the fact that the attorney general, the, the current attorney general, Dana Nessel, is sympathetic to some of these uh, claims that you guys made uh, and talk about her role in the settlement process. Because as I understand it, uh, the attorney general issued communications to all of the county elected uh, prosecutors about you know, how these resentencing hearings should go, how what kinds of sentences these prosecutors should seek. What do you think about that? Yeah, so all of these cases originate, or most of them originate at the county level. And every county has an elected prosecuting attorney who makes decisions about how to prioritize their their policies and their their work. Um, And one of the things we were seeing is that some of the prosecutors in the state were uh, going through and making um, reasonable decisions about who who they were gonna ask for for lower sentences, for higher sentences, and for even juvenile life without parole. Our position is that juvenile life without parole should be completely off the table um, in every case. We think it's unconstitutional. 
Um, but no court has ruled that way yet. And so it's understandable that prosecutors would keep that as you know, one of the possibilities um, for, for some cases. But what we were seeing is that some prosecutors, rather than keeping it as a possibility for extreme cases, uh, were trying to get people sentenced to youth, sentenced to juvenile life without parole in every single case. Um, and that really is unconstitutional. That goes against what the U.S. Supreme Court said about juvenile life without parole, and it, it, it's contrary to what Michigan law is now uh, that, now that there, there's you know, new statutes on the books. Um, and so as part of this case, um, the attorney general agreed to sort of play a bit of a um, centralizing role, would uh, review each case uh, and offer uh, to uh, provide assistance to prosecutors to make sure at the local level that cases were being reviewed fairly and reasonably, and also to make sure that they weren't languishing. One of the things that we've seen is that even though the U.S. Supreme Court ruled uh, many years ago at this point that juvenile life without parole is unconstitutional and that individuals need to be resentenced, uh, what we're seeing is a delays in those resentencings. And so the attorney general also agreed to um, communicate to each prosecuting attorney that they need to have a schedule for when, um, when individuals would be resentenced. Um, and so we're still monitoring that, that aspect of the case. It's really up to, uh, for the most part, it's up to the local prosecuting attorneys and, and we're trying to make sure that that's being done um, at a reasonable pace. But, the, um, but that was part of the settlement was that the attorney general uh, would, would play a role in that process. Thank you so much for sharing that. The other question that I had was about how these cases come about. You mentioned that Michigan was an outlier state before these cases and, and how it treated uh, juvenile uh, offenders. But one of the questions that I had was about the long-term vision for juvenile justice in Michigan. Our organization has taken a lot of steps to push, you know, a number of uh, initiatives, a number of campaigns. But one of the things that you guys mentioned in your complaints that you filed is international norms. Uh, what, I think in 2019, you filed a complaint in this case uh, saying that juvenile sentences without, an, without a meaningful opportunity for release violated international law. And it mentions the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. How effective do you think that this argument on international norms has been in the past? And do you think it's likely to be used again in the future in future cases uh, involving juvenile justice? Well, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's to take a step back, it is absolutely the case that not only was Michigan an outlier, but the United States is an outlier among the international community when it comes to how we treat children in our criminal justice system. We're the only country in the world um, uh, that sentences youth to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. And that's because um, like you mentioned, many of the international conventions and declarations around human rights have all condemned this practice as being a human rights violation. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, you know, it's not really the case that we would bring a lawsuit just based on an international human rights norm, uh, but we do include 
references and citations and authorities around international human rights, because uh, those can inform what it means to have cruel and unusual punishment. Note that the word unusual is in there. And if we're the only country in, a wor- in the world doing something, uh, that is one data point in whether it's an unusual punishment that needs to have uh, you know, stricter scrutiny by, by our courts. Um, the same is true for concepts of due process. Um, uh, you know, what is, what is fairness in our system? Um, and one way we can measure fairness in our system is to see whether other systems are having more success uh, by doing things differently. And so I think it's really a matter of, um, uh, you know, not, not just focusing on um, a state-by-state analysis, but also seeing whether there are other models out there that uh, could be more successful for us because they've been so successful elsewhere. Yeah, and you know, as you know, one of the big uh, proponents of that kind of analysis, the evolving standards of decency, was Justice Kennedy, right? In the in the Roper case, he mentions in his opinion, talking, he he does a survey of countries in the world, and he also does a survey of the states and see how they're administering uh, life sentences. We've talked a little bit about Supreme Court cases here. I, I want to talk about the, the change in the makeup of the court, right? And, and Jones versus Mississippi in particular, where you know Justice Sotomayor in her dissenting opinion said that this decision effectively guts Miller versus or Miller and Montgomery. Uh, and in our last episode, we talked about how Jones might be signaling kind of a reversal or a slowing of the positive trend in uh, juvenile law. Uh, with the changing of the makeup of the court, Justice Kennedy is no longer on it. Um, what does the decision in Jones signal to you as far as the future of juvenile justice in the Supreme Court? Yeah, no, I think that's a very good point. And it was certainly a disappointment and um, it certainly may mark a retrenchment, um, not only because of what the decision means in and of itself, but because, as you mentioned, there's uh, been a a pretty substantial change in the composition of the U.S. Supreme Court. And now I think instead of having, um, you know, a five to four majority, conservative majority, where um, one of the conservatives is more sympathetic to certain issues like juvenile justice, uh, we now have a pretty uh, entrenched six to three conservative majority. And we'll see over time whether any of the new justices are open to moving things in the right direction on criminal justice and juvenile justice. But, but you know, I'm not, um, not going to hold my breath. We'll just have to see. Um, and so what that means for this work, uh, partly, uh, is that um, we also need to not abandon our work in state courts, as well as not abandon our work under state constitutions, uh, because uh, regardless of what the United States Constitution says or how it's being interpreted by the US Supreme Court, every state is free to provide greater protections under their own state constitutions as interpreted by their state Supreme Courts than we have under the US Constitution as interpreted by the US Supreme Court. And that's very important in this context because in Michigan, instead of having under the Eighth Amendment's cruel and unusual clause, in the Michigan Constitution, we have what's called a cruel or unusual clause. The wording of the um, 
part of our state constitution dealing with punishment is actually different and more protective than the wording and the interpretation of the United States Constitution. Um, and that means that our Supreme Court can make its own decisions about what constitutes cruel or unusual punishment um, and can make its own decisions about how, uh, what are the outer limits on, on punishment in terms of how we treat people in our criminal legal system. Um, and so we may see over the next uh, few years uh, decisions from the Michigan Supreme Court um, that go in a different direction from decisions by the U.S. Supreme Court. And that would be uh, not only good for uh, our criminal legal system and our juvenile justice system, but it's really how the system overall is supposed to work. Um, so uh, I am cautiously optimistic that although we've seen some, we've had, you know, we've had some bad news over the past few years, we might still have more good news to come. I will adopt your cautious optimism. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's all the questions that we had planned. Is there anything else that you want to talk about as far as juvenile life without parole goes? Any last parting words that you want to leave us with? Well, uh, you know, I, I think you said it best when you talked about um, uh, children being treated as children and uh, the need to make sure people have second chances. In this case, the Hill case, you know, we started at a place where there was absolutely no hope um, of ever getting out of prison. Um, and now many of our clients are back with their families working in their community um, and they're building plans for their own futures. So that's where I prefer to leave it. And, and like Hussein said, with a, perhaps a, a cautious note of optimism, I, I think there's um, certainly room for us to be hopeful for the future. That's so great. Thank you, Dan, so much for taking the time out of your day to have this conversation with us and for walking us through the Hill case and all the different implications of the, the decision there and Juvenile Life Without Parole as a whole. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. You're, you're welcome. It was a pleasure talking with you. Next up, we're going to hear from Senator Jeff Irwin, who is a Michigan senator representing Washtenaw County in Michigan. And he's going to talk to us about some bills that he introduced in this legislative session to um, eliminate the use of juvenile life without parole in Michigan. My name is Jeff Irwin. I'm the state senator for the 18th district in Washtenaw County. And we're so thankful that you took the time to meet with us this morning. Um, especially given the bill package that you're leading, which is the Juvenile Life Without Parole Reform. The Michigan Center for Youth Justice, our goal here is to create a fair and equitable justice system for kids. And so, you know, we're very excited about this bill package. Can you tell us a bit about the, the package that you're leading? Yeah. And so many, many years ago, about 10 years ago, I think, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Miller v. Alabama that sentencing juveniles to a life sentence without any opportunity for parole is cruel and unusual punishment and it's unconstitutional. When that happened, Michigan had uh, many uh, kids or 
people who had been sentenced when they were juveniles, but who were still in prison. I think at the time, if I remember correctly, the number was around 350 or so. And uh, when that happened, I was in the state house and, and I thought, you know, okay, what's going to happen is that these cases are going to be quickly uh, brought forward. These individuals are going to have an opportunity for parole. Uh, the parole board is going to assess whether or not, you know, uh, well, first they'll get resentenced and hopefully they'll get a, a sentence that does have some sort of opportunity for them to show if they've been rehabilitated or re at least get a review and the process will work itself, you know, forward and there'll be some sort of, um, you know, the wheels of justice will turn or something like that, right? And what I realized was that that's not what happened or that's not what's happening. Uh, the cases are, are, are taking way too long way too many prosecutors just said, well, I'm gonna just blanket object to every one of these cases and try to make sure that every one of these cases, uh, the sentencing doesn't change, that the people end up continuing to spend their life in prison without parole. And um, it just really gummed up the process. And so some of those cases have now finally made their way through the courts. And some of those individuals who had been sentenced as juveniles have gotten resentenced. And, and, and um, yet, even 10 years later, uh, many, many of those cases are still lingering in the court systems. So upon, you know, kind of recognizing that after I got, you know, reelected to government and came back to the state Senate, I thought to myself, gosh, Miller v. Alabama was 10 years ago. There have been subsequent cases that could, that also, you know, demonstrated that our state law is out of compliance with the U.S. Constitution. So I thought, I thought look, here is something that maybe the legislature could do to step in and do two things. One, correct our law so that we no longer have this unconstitutional law on the books and ensure that our law, uh, you know, directs our courts to do what, what we want our courts to do, which is to, um, you know, make sure that all juveniles, when they're sentenced, they at least have an opportunity for parole. They have at least have an opportunity to get in front of that review board and show that they've been rehabilitated, show that they've stayed on track in prison, show that they haven't been getting into disciplinary pro problems, show that they've got support back home, show that maybe they're a changed person than they were than what they were when they were 15 or 16, which could have been 20 or 30 years ago. So um, that, that's, that's one piece of it. The other piece is that uh, I felt that the legislature could um, put some stipulations in the law, but also could kind of push the judicial branch to finish their work with these still lingering cases that are out there uh, with folks who are, who are still in prison and still haven't really gotten a chance to have their case resensed. That's great. Thanks so much. Can you talk a little bit about what challenges uh, you'll have to overcome to get these bills passed? I know this is a bipartisan bill package, um, but I'm sure you still are facing some level of political opposition, even philosophical opposition to you know these bills. Can you talk about how you're going to overcome those challenges? I do think you're right. We're going to face challenges with these bills. Anytime you try to adjust the laws that are dealing with cases that that you know can be you know very serious cases, uh, that's one of the biggest things you end up coming up against. You come up against uh, you know, these anecdotes, which, which, you know, can be, you know, very serious cases. And, you know, when I proposed to my colleagues, hey, we should take these cases, even where a juvenile has done something very serious, something very wrong, we should still give them an opportunity uh, to get in front of the parole board at some point. You know, they were a, a kid when they committed this crime, 
uh, I think that means that the sort of justice that they should receive is different. And even if it was, you know, say a very heinous crime, this individual really needs a chance to get to get back in front of the parole board if they commit their crime when they're a kid. What what comes up, just to put a finer point on it, is well, here's what they did. Let's go back to that worst day in their life and let's try to you know recreate that very serious crime and dwell on that anecdote rather than dwell on what it was the Supreme Court encouraged us to dwell on and what, you know, I think, uh, uh, you know, we really ought to dwell on if we think about this in a a more uh, long-term way, which is that, um, you know, I want to focus on, uh, you know, not that one incident and how terrible it was, but how can we do better going forward? And, And, you know, once again, one of the biggest challenges I face is that folks who oppose these kinds of ideas want to go back to that that incident, and they want to, they want to focus on that, and, and that makes it very difficult to have a productive conversation. One of the other big things is that uh, the legislature has a rhythm of its own, and you know what happened was during the last two years, uh, during the hundredth session of the Michigan legislature, 2019, 2020, we had a very productive session on criminal justice reform. It was a session where both sides came together and we got quite a few things done. It was a very productive session. The hundredth session was very productive on criminal justice reform. What I've been hearing this session from my colleagues is that there is criminal justice reform fatigue. It's one of my least favorite phrases in Lansing because um, it's, it's, it's just sort of an element of pushback that we're getting even for, even when there's general agreement about the substance of the issue, uh, you know the general pushback is well we moved really fast we went we we moved really far in 2019 2020 maybe we need to put the brakes on that uh, here in 2021 2022 even though it's one of these areas where both sides can really agree both sides can come together on some of these ideas of redemption and rehabilitation and saving money in our justice system and having a justice system that's smarter and that really focuses on rehabilitating people rather than you know keeping them for longer than we have to because Michigan has a system with some of the longest prison stays in the country so uh, you know that's that's I think what we're up against we're up against you know that 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 mentality that um, you know what's best for uh, society is to is to punish people for for their bad acts rather than to rehabilitate uh, that general uh, uh, philosophy. But then also this issue of criminal justice reform fatigue, where folks are feeling like uh, uh, you know we we need to do less on that issue now because we did so much more so much on it in the last two years. Yeah, I mean it, it's good to hear that there was at least a little bit of consensus and a little bit of an appetite. Uh, in the legislature for you know justice reform. Uh, now I want to hear. I want to ask about um, who you've been hearing from outside of the legislature, aside from your colleagues, um, you know, from your constituents or organizations. Can you talk about who you're hearing from in terms of uh, support or opposition for these bills, and like you know, in, in particular, unlikely supporters of these bills, folks that you wouldn't otherwise expect to expect to be on your side for this. Well, uh, one of the groups that I hear from that I expect to be uh, on on to the right side of criminal justice reform in my area are, you know, groups like uh, you know, uh, faith-based coalitions. In my area, we have a coalition called We Rock um, that is a coalition of faith-based organizations that organize largely in the Ypsilanti area that care about criminal justice reform. You know, they want a system that is a service to their community rather than a system that is 
grinding their community up and um, making it more difficult for people to get ahead. You know, all the ways in which our criminal justice system targets for people of color and particularly black people, black and brown people, these communities are concerned about criminal justice reform. So I get a lot of, um, I get a lot of ideas. I get a lot of push to uh, continue to work on smart justice programs from those uh, kind of communities. I also happen to be, you know, in Washington County, we happen to be in an area that has a lot of organizations that I would call, you know, serial do-gooders. Uh, I, I, you know, group, groups like uh, groups like MCYJ, uh, groups like uh, American Friends Service Committee that does a lot of prison reform work. So those are groups I hear from definitely. And then I also hear from uh, folks who are returning citizens. I mean, I, I have some uh, returning juvenile lifers who are in my community, who are doing great work at nonprofits, you know, working on meeting people's housing needs and, and I, I, you know, things like that. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of one particular returning citizen right now who, who you know, when I, when I see her in the community, I'm always, I'm always happy to see her, right? And so I, I guess I'm getting it from a variety of different angles. Uh, and, you know, when, 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 um, well, I, I'll just say it this way. One of the things I'm very fortunate to, to do is to represent a community like Washtenaw County, where there are so many folks who are thoughtful and caring about you know, how we serve our fellow humans and how we continue to try to improve these systems, the systems of care and systems of justice to make sure that they serve the interests of, of people. Thanks so much. That's fantastic. And I'm glad to hear that you're hearing support from your community for these bills too. So if our supporters want to support these bills, uh, Senate bills 848 through Senate bills 851, um, what can they do to help support this legislation and getting it passed? Well, the first thing that I would encourage anybody who supports this legislation to do is to simply write their legislators. Uh, write, write your legislators and, and, and indicate that you support this idea, you can support the bills, uh, and maybe even more importantly than you know, supporting the bills is that uh, you support the bills because you support the philosophy behind them. You support the philosophy that drove the U.S. Supreme Court to say that juvenile life without the opportunity for parole is unconstitutional. It's cruel and unusual punishment, and that when people do something wrong when they're a juvenile, particularly when they're juvenile, they deserve a second chance. They deserve at least an opportunity to get out and to show that they've been rehabilitated. You know, I think that's a really important sentiment, a, a really important set of values uh, that underpin this legislation. And I would encourage folks to communicate that sort of value-based concern to their legislators. You know, and then I would encourage folks to also you know, take the next step, which is to uh, you know, get involved in pressing for smart justice legislation like this. And one way to do that is by getting involved in organizations like MCYJ. Uh, and another way is to, you know, get involved in some of these other great criminal justice reform organizations out there. And, you know, finally, I would just encourage folks to, to get more political, uh, do more political organizing, uh, it, you know, in your daily affairs, right? It, it, may, it may feel weird to think of it that way. Um, and that's the way I think of it. But what I'm talking about is just simply talking to your friends and family, not being shy about uh, making sure that important issues that matter to the future of our state, that matter to the future of your community uh, are, are things that you're talking about. I, I guess, you know, one final thing I would say to folks is that one of the things we really need in order to get 
bills like these passed is we need to have people in uh, more you know conservative elements of the state talking about this and we need to have you know i look i'm very um grateful to my republican colleagues who joined on this bill package with me and i, I think that um senator vanderwall and senator mcdonald can see you know why this works and they can see how this is in line with their philosophies and how this is in line with say for instance their you know um you know christian values around uh redemption and and, and you know around um being true to those you know giving folks that that opportunity to come back into the circle of community yeah i would just encourage folks to you know press those conversations with friends who are you know, in areas outside of, of some of these, you know, liberal bastions that, that I represent and, and, you know, make sure that, that we're encouraging folks who are more conservative to say, yeah, I care about criminal justice reform too, and I want to work in coalition with you. One of the things I enjoy most in Lansing is when um, we do have those opportunities to work together across lines that are untraditional and find out that there's, there's more that connects us than divides us. That's great. Thank you so much. Uh, Hussein, do you have anything else? No, thank you so much, uh, Senator Irwin, for your time. That's all the time that we've got for today. I'd like to give a special thanks to Dan Karabkin from the ACLU of Michigan and Senator Jeff Irwin for taking the time to speak with us and talk on the issue of juvenile life without parole. We'll be back next month with an episode about the anti-racist justice system model in Kalamazoo, Michigan. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at MI Youth Justice. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. Thanks, and we'll see you next time at the table.